Hello. Hi. Welcome to Truly Fabulously Monstrous. A podcast about true crime and cryptids. I am half of your host, Hattie James. I am your other half of your host, and I am Ace. Hi, Ace. Hi, Hattie. How are you today? I sure am. You sure are. <laughs> I yes. sure am. It's it is been the a end. Day. Yeah, it's it's been a day in a week. For me, it's been a week. It's been a week. It sure has been a week. And next week is also probably going to be a week. Hi, it's your half a post, Hattie James here. I'm just saying that I'm editing out the entire conversation between, or the introduction, the part you just heard, and us getting on to the crime as it was just Ace and I screaming about a topic that too many people are already screaming about and figured you guys didn't need to hear it. Ace and I made that decision ourselves that you guys don't need to hear it. So enjoy the rest of the episode. Uh. <sighs> so uh, this is your turn. My turn to tell a, a crime. A crime. crime. Actually, it's... Well, okay, so... You know how in the last episode you did the prequel to Boggarts. You did yes. covered brownies. Okay, so that's I also am kind of doing a prequel today because Ooh, tell me more. I realized after we recorded the uh, episode about Linda Hazard and her information oh, no. stuff, I realized that I basically just jumped feet first into the crime and didn't give any historical background on this woman i just basically was like she's bad and starved people here's a thing and then like but i didn't really give any like why she did that why was she like that what was her childhood like are you telling me that your six pages of single space notes that you snapchatted me about and then talked about on twitter are about this fucking woman again yes okay linda hazard part two restriction boogaloo (laughs) the prequel She has a fascinating story. And if she hadn't killed people, she just wouldn't be like, oh, wow, what a fascinating historical read. Like, wow, you really did like try and break through as a woman in like alternative medicine because like not all alternative health practices are terrible. Some of them are like chiropractors. Like that's alternative medicine. And like that has its place. Like going to see a chiropractor can do you have a really good chiropractor that like knows what they're doing and is not like, ooh, essential oils. I'm just saying not all alternative medicines are terrible. And I mean, definitely they should never be used in place of actual medicine. But like okay. in addition to like, if you are getting treatment for like, say rheumatoid arthritis and you're doing your rheumatoid arthritis medical treatment, in addition to that, if you also would like to go seek like acupuncture, that's, yeah. That can definitely help you. The only issue with Linda Hazard is that she killed people. Okay. And, the, uh, <laughs> and encouraged starvation. Like, that's literally the only problem I have with her now. That's a big glaring problem, though. It's a big glaring problem. Okay, no. so yeah, I do have, I do have, basically, I'm here to tell you now the, the backstory of Linda Hazard. So let's start with early life. Uh, Linda Burfield. That was her maiden name. Uh, born in Carver County, Minnesota in 1867. She was the oldest of seven children. So she had eldest daughter syndrome. She did, yeah. 
her uh, her father's name was Montgomery. Uh, he was from Pennsylvania, and Susan Neal uh, was her mother, and she was a Canadian woman who had lost her first husband during the American Civil War. So that's dramatic. Uh, Linda was a rambunctious and outdoorsy girl from Greg Olson's book, Starvation Heights. Uh, I have a quote. She was an outgoing 10-year-old girl then, more interested in tree climbing than in dolls. Sounds like me. Sounds also like me. <laughs> Except I was very bad at climbing trees and I fell out of them a lot. Yeah, I was too scared to, that I was going to fall out to climb trees, oh. but I did do the, I like to crash my bike almost every day. But my favorite thing to do on a bike was bike with no hands. I could only do it with one, like I could take one hand off, but I could never get that. I could have hand both off. hands on the side, just do, 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 do. Oh, I need to turn, use one hand to slightly turn. Look at me, I'm so cool. And everyone was like, this kid crashes her bike every single day. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Go so on. she most likely formed her opinions regarding food and health from her parents' shared ideals about diet and exercise. Uh, the Burfield family maintained almost exclusively a vegetarian diet, and on the occasion that there was meat present on their table, Susan never forced her children to eat it. So that was kind of cool. Like, that was, she didn't force her children to do something that they didn't want to do. Okay, In the 1800s, you, that's unheard of. But you can't blame her killing people by starving them on having good parents who happen to be vegetarians. No, I know. I'm just saying that's where, that's like kind of where her, like, opinions about food started i really am excited to see how parents instilling healthy eating habits turned into women her parents just gave her like the start of like here's some healthy ideas and she probably would have just held on to those ideas if like later stuff hadn't also happened okay Uh, for her own interest in specialty medicine uh, linda herself would trace this to the house call visits from a doctor who was employed yearly by uh, her father montgomery burfield because montgomery followed the logic that even if no one in the family was ill that his children could benefit from the care of a yearly doctor's visit you know preventative medical care that's the basis of modern medicine yes unfortunately this was the 1800s and not all doctors were good at being doctors (laughs) no there's a uh there's a quote I actually saw today that said, most men die from the treatment, not the ailment. And it, there was a quote from like the 1600s. So. Yeah, let's throw some leeches on it. You'll be fine. Yeah. You have too much Iro- blood in your body. You gotta get that blood out of your body. Ironically, I saw that on the infograph in a museum display for bloodletting today. So, <laughs> so uh, in the case of the Burfield family doctor, The doctor convinced the parents that all seven of their children had potentially fatal intestinal parasites, despite none of them complaining of any illness or showing any symptoms of having parasites. Despite this, well, he's a doctor. Of course he's a doctor. He's a doctor. Well, we must listen to the doctor because you can't can't contradict what a doctor tells you because he's a doctor. So he prescribed all the children uh, pills that incurred, you know, the predicted results of a treatment for intestinal parasites in the 1800s namely excessive vomiting and diarrhea oh fun so essentially a laxative and some syrup of avocac uh-huh he convinced the burfields that this treatment was necessary and was given to the children on and off over the course of several years no So as a result, Linda Burfield was convinced that these treatments for a parasite that there was no evidence that she or or her siblings ever had, had resulted in the irreparable damage to her digestive system and prevented them from developing properly. I mean, she's probably not 
entirely incorrect. Like that's, it probably did damage her intestines quite a bit. I mean, if she, it would be a different story if they had had parasites, like, but yeah. if there was nothing wrong with them and it's like, here, take this, it's going to make you shit yourself to death. <laughs> you have ghosts. <laughs> ghosts in your intestines, shit them out. <laughs> <laughs> this is probably what started her lifelong obsession with seeking alternative treatment and cures for intestinal issues that didn't require such harsh medical treatments. Okay. So by the age of 18, this was in uh, 1885, she married a man named Irwin Perry, and he was the son of a well-off pioneer family who was 14 years older than her. And uh, they had two children. So again, fairly standard for a Midwestern woman in the late 1800s. She stayed married to Irwin Perry for little over a decade despite having little interest in their marriage in the first place it i guess it was kind of like a marriage of convenience like okay uh she was already starting to uh plan her path into medicine uh two months into their marriage she received news that her father had died in a tragic and very violent accident on the family farm oh no he was in the process of transporting logs up to the family mill uh when one of the mechanisms securing the like the load he was pulling broke and he was crushed to death but he oh, no. yeah he final destination oh no that was very tragic and upsetting so she probably never recovered from the death of her father she definitely grieved his loss for the rest of her life again from the starvation heights book uh quote he was she thought the only completely honorable man she ever knew not her husband's not her son no one had been as true to another as montgomery had been to susan burfield so yeah so that also probably did not do her any favors in you know maintaining a healthy relationship healthy relationship with possibly anyone but definitely not with like her current husband probably uh, probably gave her like a lot of depression issues that was never truly identified because again it's the 1800s and yeah you're not working hard enough oh you're sad that's the devil talking no work hard you're sad do cocaine about it <laughs> you're sad have more children about it you're not working hard enough so during the 13 years of her marriage to Irwin perry uh linda gave birth to two children Roland Perry in 1889 and Nina Floyd in 1891. Roland would then go on. He was very connected later on in the Wilderness Heights Sanitarium in Olala. He like he worked on the grounds. He was helping build the sanitarium. Roland was very like connected to his mother's life, and uh, he would be present in the case of Dora later on of Dora and Claire Williamson. Uh, Nina Floyd, on the other hand, that's her full name, like Nina Floyd, uh, Nina Floyd Perry. Uh, she would just kind of fade into the background of her mother's history. We don't really hear from her much again. Uh, by 1898, Linda and Irwin separated. In the local papers where Linda was in Minnesota, she claimed that Irwin abandoned the family and left her with two children and no support. However, uh, a lot of people in Linda's life would later come out to say, eh, we never really felt that this was true. It was probably Linda that left Irwin, but Irwin neither confirmed nor denied this. Well, I think that was also at the time when, like, men were expected to, like, keep the households together. So the fact that he probably didn't do everything in his power to get her back home with the kids, uh, like, they that probably 
could be argued that he abandoned them, even though it was her choice. Either way, their divorce was finalized in the fall of 1902. So it's the start of a new century, and she's a divorced woman. Fresh start. Uh, she resumed using her maiden name as well, and she changed her children's surname to Burfield. So that's uh, a big so, blow to Mr. Perry. <laughs> well, I, I don't, I don't know how the children felt about it because at this time, uh, she also sent her children to live with their grandmother, her mother, in Minnesota. So she was just like, "All right, I'm, I'm divorced. Fresh start. Uh, these kids, that guy, yeah, shoo." Too, who live with your grandmother. Uh, this is Be gone, when, children. I don't she, want you nor your father. Because she had plans. She had plans to begin a career in medicine, and that just kind of pushed out any interest that she ever had in being a mother, if she had ever had any interest in being a mother. She now, she's like, I have the plan, and those plans do not involve caring for you two, so go live with my mother. She could use the company. I don't know where the rest of her siblings were, but... She could um, use the company and she could use the help on the farm. Yep. Uh, she rationalized any man in her position would do the same, would put his ambitions before his family in order to better society as a whole. So why shouldn't she do that? I so mean, she, <laughs> valid. Valid, yeah. She planned to use uh, her quest to find a cure for her damaged digestive system to then cure the rest of the world of the same. So um, just a quick aside regarding her children, and this is also possibly uh, one of the reasons why Nina Floyd just kind of like was not present in the later story of Starvation Heights. While Roland would return to the company of his mother as an adult and work at the sanitarium, Nina Floyd held a grudge against her mother for the breakup of the family and for being sent away in favor of her mother's ambitions. Uh, But that grudge kind of went both ways because at the very end of her life, like after... Uh, Linda has passed away uh, in her last will and testament. She left her daughter one dollar. Uh, rude. Yeah. So <laughs> Nina's like, I don't like you, mom. Her mom's like, yeah, same. <laughs> okay, it's so like worse than leaving nothing. <laughs> yeah, it kind of like through the estate BS to claim that one dollar. Oh god. So uh, without the burden of raising a burden, sorry, burden in quotes, without the burden of raising a family and maintaining a household, Linda was free to pursue her medical studies. Uh, This began initially with her studying osteopathy, which is the practice of treating medical disorders through the manipulation and massage of the bones, joints, and muscles. And uh, if you remember from the previous episode, she would include, quote, vigorous massages as part of her treatment in addition to the hours long animus but osteopaths are more of fancy chiropractors than they are masseuses that's i said uh, she had plans to become a nurse of osteopathy and that um i have a note here that uh osteopaths as well as physiotherapists and chiropractors technically are not like medical doctors uh practitioners of these things can definitely provide benefits and good treatments for ailments uh, but it's always best to seek medical advice from your primary care provider first who can recommend the best course of actions. And those course of actions may very well to be to seek out these alternative practices, but just that those they're they're not doctors. I have met chiropractors who are doctors, like they were doctors, like they got their they're like degree. and there are definitely osteopaths and, and then they went to be like all right now i'm going to take everything i've learned about like it was someone who took their medical degree and then went and focused on like physical therapy and chiropractic 
Either way, back to Linda's backstory. She was on the path to become an osteopathic nurse, and then she discovered the gospel of health, uh, which is the name of the book. It's not just this book was no. the gospel of health. The title of the book, The Gospel of Health, written by one Dr. Edward Hooker Dewey. If you you told me about this guy. He's <laughs> the one that yep. I said I hope he's in the afterlife feeling bad about his stupid, shitty actions. Nope. He's not. <laughs> he's not feeling bad about it. He was Linda's inspiration, her senpai, if you will, where he touted the health benefits of the fast. He embraced the use of the fast for all things ailing you. Uh, when in 1877 he took over a uh, treatment of a case of typhoid fever in which all the regular medical treatments for typhoid fever had failed so Dewey opted to quote let nature take her course and implemented a fast for this patient and that sounds like a very poetic way to say I am out of options so I'm going to let this patient starve to death or die from a fever whichever comes first however like after 34 days of fasting the patient recovered which of course absolutely proves that it was the fasting that worked it totally it worked once and that totally means it will work every time case closed go home everyone we solved medicine uh. after reading dewey's the gospel of health as well as his other treatise on diet the no breakfast plan linda made contact with dewey and pled her case to study under him and be the one to carry on his teachings which she did. She studied under Dewey and she became a major champion for the use of fasting in all walks of life. And while she viewed Dewey as her teacher and mentor, they did clash a little bit in some regards. Namely, Linda was real enthusiastic about the use of, quote, the internal bath. Also known as our good old friend, the anima. I hate it. She insisted, she insisted uh, the two things were two parts of the whole treatment and that enemas were the necessary conclusion of a fast in order to maintain continuous hygiene and to clean out your digestive tract of all those toxins that were building up in your system. Dewey disagreed and felt that human bowels were perfectly capable of flushing out those built-up toxins naturally on their own. Thank you very much. Keep your enema hose nozzle away from my butt, please, and thank you. <laughs> Despite this disagreement on how best to starve your patients, Dewey and Linda <laughs> remained Dewey and Linda remained very, very close until Dewey's death. So he's probably not regretting anything in the afterlife. He was like, ah yes, my student, carry on my teaching. Maybe ease up on the animus a little bit, but you're like, you know, good, good, starve people, my child, starve people. So now uh, we're going to pivot slightly and we are going to meet uh, we're gonna meet Sam. Enter Sam. Uh, she opened her first office in downtown Minneapolis. Despite all odds, her first practice thrived. People loved her. Uh, she wrote about this first practice later. Cases pronounced incurable by medical physicians recovered under the regimen I imposed, and the symptoms presented ranged from chronic constipation, diabetes, Bright's disease, and syphilis to paralysis. Okay, I and can see the constipation. Yes, that, I can't. that's the one thing on that list that might possibly be cured by maybe like a brief fasting and some enemas. No, yeah, constipation, like maybe fasting for two days to get rid of um, the lack of poops. I, the enemas for constipation, I can see. I can I, see that. Yeah, I don't mean to call Linda a liar. I very much doubt that like she was able to cure someone's paralysis by starving them and shooting or water. Or syphilis. 
or syphilis. I just, I mean, call me a skeptic. I don't think that's how you cure that. No. Yeah. Uh, But regardless, people really liked her. And they were like, absolutely, once again, this is the turn of the century. People were still like, oh, yeah, let's do weird medical stuff. Yeah, enemas, absolutely. I love it. It's just like, I just... I don't, I see enemas as like, if you have severe constipation and like an intestinal blockage, flushing can help. And I know people who've paid to get like enemas, they call them colon flushes now, uh, done where they kind of- colonics. Uh, Colonics are, a colonic is like an enema on steroids. Yeah. But like, it's like so, taking a fire hose to your intestines. But like, if you are, if you feel well, like you have, it's part of like, um, like pre, like pre-surgery. Yeah. Like, set up for like certain surgery. So again, just like f- fasting is good pre-surgery. Enemas are good pre-surgery if for certain things. Um, I can see with like constipation and stomach blockages, how enemas can be t- helpful in a temporary sense, but they don't. Don't just be like, oh, I have diabetes. Let me just shove water up my butt. Like, I don't. Or, hey, it's Tuesday. Mm, may as well shove water up my butt. My glands are swollen. Let's shove water up my butt. <laughs> like, no, please. Please no to the enemas. In 1903, Linda was treating a patient named Frank Strong at his home. So she made house calls. Uh, isn't that nice of her? Oh, oh house calls. So nice. Anyway, uh, Frank Strong had fallen ill. He was being treated in his home, uh, which was an apartment building that he owned with his wife, Kate. So Frank and Kate Strong had recently rented one of their apartments in the building to a lovely newlywed couple named Samuel and Viva Hargrave. Samuel Hargrave was an insurance salesman for the American Credit Indemnity Company. He had uh, passed as he was in... um, he was in the army and he was going to, uh, what's the, what's the army school? West Point? I think so. West Point? Yeah. Uh, he ended up not graduating from West Point and he ended up uh, working for this uh, credit union, essentially. And Viva was the daughter of an Iowa state senator. They had met when Samuel offered Viva the use of his umbrella during a rainstorm while they waited oh, for a streetcar. So Very romantic. Whirlwind romance led to their marriage in St. Paul, Minnesota, and his job assignment at the Minneapolis office of the credit union. After their wedding, they rented this apartment from Frank and Kate Strong in downtown Minneapolis. Isn't that lovely? It is. So now, while Frank was being treated by Linda Burfield, there was no reason for her to have met either Samuel or Viva because they lived in a different part of the building. And by all accounts, they were too busy being newlyweds and doing all the fun stuff that newlyweds do at the turn of the century, like showing them each other their ankles or whatever. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Whipping a tit out. A Whipping a <laughs> Scandalous. <laughs> Uh, so, so it's not clear when Samuel Hargrave and Linda Burfield had any course to meet, but they definitely met because suddenly Linda Burfield's fasting specialist began showing up wherever Samuel Hargrave was. She just was like, let's go follow this guy around and also seemingly vice versa, kind of, because her offices were in downtown Minneapolis and uh, people just like saw him going into her offices a lot. Oh, no. His explanation was that he was making plans to go into business with her, 
kind of makes sense. He was involved in a credit union and like investing investment money, money, money things. I don't understand money. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so this was his explanation that he gave his wife when he introduced, like he introduced the two of them. He was like, okay, uh, future business partner, Linda, this is my wife, Viva, wife, Viva. This is my future business partner, Linda. Hey, who? let's all be friends. So after he introduced his wife to his new uh, fasting specialist friend, Viva began to receive anonymous letters full of insulting comments and hateful accusations that insisted that her marriage to Samuel Hargrave was based on lies and that Samuel was in love with someone else, specifically with Linda Burfield. Gosh, I wonder could who it was. Who was anonymously sending these letters? Could be who Linda Burfield. Who could it be? Not Linda Burfield. So Samuel, of course, he was like, oh, no, baby, no, no, baby, this, this, don't pay attention to those letters. They don't mean anything. It's nonsense. No, baby, I have no idea who would make such vile, vile allegations. No, baby, don't, don't. <laughs> so he promised his wife that he would terminate his friendship with Linda and that he would abandon his plans to become a business partner in, in her medical practice. Uh, he even sent uh, essentially a breakup letter to Linda saying as much. So Linda received this letter, read it, and then kind of like Bender in that one episode of Futurama went, I choose to not understand these signs. DW, this sign means nothing to me because I can't can't read. read. And just continued to steamroll ahead with her plan to steal Samuel Hargrave for herself. She was like, that dude, that guy, I want him. I didn't want my other husband, but this one, I want this one. And uh, on November 11th, 1903, Linda Burfield and Samuel C. Hazard were married by a minister in her own fasting practice office. She then spent her wedding night alone because, you know, her new husband had to go home to his other wife or, you know, his only wife because bigamy was illegal. And I don't think that their marriage was, you know, legal. But over the next few days, Sam kind of ping-ponged his way between his two wives until November 14th when he asked Viva to meet him in his office at the credit union that evening. But when she showed up, he was not there. She did find a note that he had left for her, though, explaining that he had another business engagement come up and that he would be detained and then he would see her later that night. He did not see her later that night. He did not come home that night. And she spent the night kind of like very restless, very worried. Like what happened? Was he sick? Did he get hurt? Was he hurt somewhere and unable to contact her? You know, worried wife stuff. When you, yeah. So the next morning he comes back to the apartment along with her father. Ruh-roh. Oh no. Uh Uh-oh. Samuel proceeds to very just kind of dispassionately tell his wife that she is not his wife and that in fact there is no record of their marriage in St. Paul and that legally she is only his common law wife and that he's married to Linda Burfield now. I don't know why her father was there other than possibly for emotional support. I don't know if he came on his own and happened to show up at the same time as Samuel did or Samuel went and got him and was like hey I'm about to emotionally devastate your daughter want to come i like it's not really clear in any of the research i did but either way after this confrontation samuel hargrave or hazard i really don't know which one is his actual last name he quits his job at the credit union with no notice 
He didn't need notice. He had plans and he had plans that involved a health and treatment center that would make him and his new wife rich and famous in the top of Minneapolis society. He didn't seem to take into account the very, very legitimate anger <laughs> that was about to wash over him from Viva <laughs> because I and her he, famous politician yeah. father. Like, I guess he was kind of just expecting her to be like, I'm sad, and then fade away into the background. Uh, no. She fought back with I kind of, like the legal equivalent of just a punch in the gut. Cause uh I you're yeah, you see, you remembered. I don't think Samuel remembered that uh she's the daughter of a state senator. Who was present for the whole thing? Who was present for the whole thing. So uh, she had her father's political pull behind her. And uh, Samuel C. Hargrave was arrested on charges of bigamy just after Thanksgiving in 1903. And it was a sensational case. It made the news. All of Minneapolis waited for this trial uh, because times may change, but American addiction to the messy drama of major political figures and their families is eternal. Yes. Uh, it was a messy trial. Linda Burfield and Samuel's defense attorneys uh, sunk all their effort into proving that Viva and Samuel's marriage in St. Paul never happened and into vilifying Viva as a woman of dubious moral character who had fabricated the marriage. And their, uh, their reasoning behind this was, well, she had been married and divorced several times before, so she has dubious moral character. This divorced woman, Linda, I don't think you're allowed to make comments on That's that. That's like Linda, glass Linda? houses. Rolling Stones. Oh, said glass house. Well, Linda Burfield was like, I only got divorced once. She got divorced like two or three times. Ugh. So they were, in, oh, they also uh, decided to in, use heavy intimidation for any prosecution witnesses, including that of Samuel Hargrave's first wife in New York, who wrote to Viva's family and said that she had received telegrams threatening her not to come to Minneapolis to testify against Samuel. It is also heavily implied in those letters from Samuel's first wife that it is possible at the time of Samuel and Viva's marriage, the pending divorce between him and the wife in New York had not been finalized. Oh, no, Samuel. Uh, oh, no, Samuel. Yeah. So this is not his first rodeo in the bigamy no, train. No, no. He's just like, Samuel. No, I'll just kind of leave. <laughs> Samuel. However, despite the defense's best efforts to slander the prosecution as much as possible, ultimately, Samuel Hargrave slash Hazard was found guilty of bigamy. During his time in jail, it seemed likely that despite Linda's best efforts, uh, Sam was kind of drifting away from her because he was reconciling with Viva. Viva refused to divorce him. She was likely holding influence over him with her recent inheritance from her uncle in California, so she had that money to hold over him. Uh, Linda kept trying, though. She was visiting him constantly in prison. She refused to believe that he willingly wanted to stay with Viva. She was adamant that their appeal would be granted and that they could succeed in a new trial. There was no new trial. Uh, Viva had agreed to do all she could to shorten Samuel's stay in prison on the condition that he sever all contact with Linda, which he agreed to. Linda was barred from visiting the jail where Sam was and would be barred from the penitentiary where he would be transferred to to serve out the remainder of his prison sentence. During that prison sentence, uh, Viva Hargrave paid for any excess expenses that Samuel had, any dental work he needed, medical care. She sent money, she sent magazines, she 
she basically she did everything she could to make sure that his stay in prison was bearable she visited him they made plans for the future when he was released from prison after serving his sentence by all accounts he seemed very penitent for putting Viva through all this hardship. For serious, he was a changed man. I definitely, I love you, and I'm definitely not going to screw you over a second time. Okay. But, I mean, you all, you, you've listened to the previous episode. You know yeah. that Starvation Specialist was married to a man named Samuel. Yes. And that Starvation Specialist was not Viva. So when yeah. Samuel finished serving his prison sentence for bigamy, he was released from prison. He did not return to Frank and Kate Strong's boarding house apartments. He made his way to downtown Minneapolis to the office of Linda Burfield, and Linda Burfield won back her man. So, oh. sorry, Viva. With the return of Sam, uh, here on I'm just going to re- be referring to him as Samuel Hazard because I'm going back and forth between the two names is stupid. <laughs> and wait, that's the name, and that's the name that they used. Like, they, wait, she, um, yeah. what happened to Viva? Did they just divorce? They, yeah, ultimately they did. Yeah. Okay. So he didn't just continue out a life of bigamy until no, one of them died. they okay. ultimately divorced. Okay. Yeah. So since Hazard is the name that they were using instead of Hargrave, I'll just call him Hazard from now on. Uh, so now it was time to get down to their plans for a great sanitarium in Minneapolis. She was going to teach her message of fasting to the world. Sam was the man who would help her achieve this visit because he was good with money. However, despite or... Uh, probably because of the media circus covering the bigamy trial. Her offices were jumping. She had a lot of patients. She was as busy as she could manage on her own. And with uh, the return of Sam, the business could increase. In 1906, the listing on the Minneapolis uh, directory listed both uh, Burfield, Linda, and Hazard, Samuel C. as specialist of fasting, physical culture, and health and home, and manager of Linda Burfield's health home, respectively. However, in the following year of 1907, the directory mysteriously had no mention of Dr. Burfield, and of Samuel Hazard, it merely indicated moved to Seattle. Uh-oh, what happened to the dream team? <laughs> well, their plan, they were going to set everything up in Minneapolis. Well, you couldn't ask them because they wouldn't talk about it. There was uh, some vague references of being called to the Pacific Coast to be closer to family, and there is a little bit of information about in Minneapolis was when the first like the, her first patient died but there's so little information on that because they never brought any charges to her they never they never did anything about it because there was so little evidence like I can't even find the name of the person okay like so there's the, the I think I I'm just gonna go on the assumption that it it's possible it was a rumor I don't know like okay. after the fact of like when when all the thing was happening in Washington, they're like, well, she killed people in Minneapolis too. Like sources, like I don't have any. <laughs> okay. Possibly one issue that cropped up that caused them to kind of like pack up and leave Minneapolis was well, I mean, it didn't help that Viva still lived in Minneapolis. Like they may have been divorced, but like I mean, she was still there. Like, hi, how are you? I kind of want to ruin your life. They're just make this really uncomfortable for everyone involved. Also, Samuel was not the most faithful person. Like, if he was unfaithful to his first wife with Viva and then was unfaithful to Viva with Linda, past behavior indicative of future decision making, when it's likely he would then continue this cycle of Yeah. So, which he did. He liked two things. He liked being an alcoholic and he liked chasing after women. 
Oh, so no. that led to kind of a strained relationship since they were both still being dogged by the media, by Viva, by her family. So rather than address the problem, they went, hey, let's move somewhere new and hope the problem doesn't follow us. Let's have a clean slate in <laughs> Seattle. Let's just go there and all of our problems will go away. When you move to a new place with new women that you haven't cheated on your wife with, there's more women to cheat Look on your wife with. Look at all these women I haven't cheated on my wife with yet. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Metaphors. <laughs> So by 1908, Linda Burfield Hazard had established her new offices in Seattle, Washington. She was in the process of turning uh, their home in uh, Olala into the sanitarium fasting treatment center of her dreams. At this point, her son Roland moved to Washington to work on his mother's sanitarium to help with its construction and to act as like an orderly or an assistant with the patients. Uh, this is also when the official body count begins. Like I said, there were the accusations of a patient dying in Minneapolis. However, there was never enough evidence brought forth by any prosecuting attorneys. Nothing ever became of it before they relocated to Washington. So it is important to note, again, we've talked, I mean, we've hit on this a lot. Linda Burfield Hazard is not a doctor. <laughs> She's not. Yeah. She is not a doctor. She's a practitioner of alternative medicine. However, due to A, a very lax enforcement of medical standards in the late 1800s, early 1900s. <laughs> Snake oil salesmen, the OG essential oil MLM pushers. <laughs> and B, because of a loophole in Washington statutes regarding said medical standards, Linda Hazard was issued a license by the state of Washington to practice medicine under her fasting care specialty and to call herself a doctor, even though she was not a doctor. That's only in the state of Washington, though. That's only in the state of Washington, yes. This is where we arrive in the time span that was covered in the previous episode, uh, which I won't go into all those details again. You can go back and listen to that episode. Uh, the summary is that she followed her a pattern. Her clients were usually wealthy people seeking cures for ailments that they had or thought they had, that they felt were either brushed off by their doctors or that their doctors were unable to successfully treat. She would promise them results from her fasting regimen, citing examples from past cases that were successful, all, aka whatever the patients were suffering from usually cleared up on its own time. And then she claimed the success for that. Uh, patients would pay up front for a treatment plan that would run between uh, four to six weeks. She would start their treatments in a space rented in Seattle. And once they were too weak and emaciated to leave of their own volition, she would transfer them to the cabins on the property in Olala where the sanitarium was being built to quote, finish their treatment. Often during this process, the richer of the clients would sign over bits and pieces of their worldly possessions like jewelry, property, stocks, bonds, etc. Although not all of her patients died, she insisted that anyone who did die while undergoing her treatments died from succumbing to their underlying illnesses that had been left untreated for too long and definitely not because she was starving them and subjecting them to violent massages that were akin to beatings and inflicting enemas that lasted for hours at a time. Mm. All the while, her husband stood by her and used his past talents of fraud and misappropriation of money to drain as much money from the accounts of their patients as possible. Oh yeah, uh, I <laughs> when he was married to his first wife in New York, uh, he didn't leave West Point. He was expelled from West Point for misappropriating army funds uh. and embezzling a ton of money from the army. And that's what led to him pursuing a career with a credit union. 
I was wondering that. about that. Yeah. So he was good with money. And by good with money, I mean wink, wink, good with money. <laughs> yeah. He was good at taking money and making it disappear. <laughs> so while she was draining the life from her patrons, there was dear old Samuel helping drain all the money out of their bank accounts. And uh, as previously stated, some of her patients survived these treatments. They were added to her list of successful treatments. But as we said in the last episode, officially 14 patients, possibly more, died under her care as a result of her treatments. And again, as I'll run through the list of those uh, victims' names, uh, the people who lost their lives under her care were uh, Miss Elgin Cox, uh, Stacey Maud Hagland, Ida Wilcox, Blanche B. Tyndall, Viola Heaton, Eugene Stanley Wakeland, Maud Whitney, Earl Edward Eardman, L.E. Radar, Frank Southern, C.A. Harrison, Ivan Flux, Lewis Ellsworth Radar, and Claire Williamson, whose death she was ultimately brought to trial for, found guilty of due to the testimony of Claire's sister Dora, who nearly died from the same treatments, but who was able to escape with the help of her childhood friend and her uncle. Uh, in the previous episode, we stated uh, after the trial, she only served two years in the state penitentiary at Walla Walla. And after that, she and good old Samuel moved to New Zealand, where she continued to practice her fasting cures under the titles of physician, dietitian, and osteopath. She also published a second book, uh, because all, during all the previous stuff, she, uh, she published at least one book. So she published her second book and made enough money in New Zealand to return to Washington in 1920 to complete her school of health, because by that point, the state had wised up, pulled her license, so she could no longer call it a sanitarium. In 1935, the center burned down. <laughs> <laughs> Karma. And then in 1938, Linda Hazard died while undergoing her own fasting cure, because... <laughs> Despite all the deaths at her hands, she still steadfastly insisted that her treatment was legitimate, and that fasting and so many enemas was the cure to all intestinal issues that had plagued her her entire life due to one rogue doctor's pill-happy actions. Oh, um, I have a fun fact, which is a little bonus crime for this episode, that, um, that I know about Linda Hazard. Yes. So she moved to New Zealand, right? She did. She still went by uh, by Dr. Linda Hazard there. New Zealand no. did not have the same laws as Washington. And in 1917, it was posted in a New Zealand newspaper that she held a practicing certificate for alternative medicine for the medical board of the state of Washington and that that practicing certificate had been revoked. So she was charged in Auckland uh, under the Medical Practitioners Act for practicing medicine while not registered or accredited to do so and she was fined what is considered uh, what was at the time five pounds plus cost which uh by 2014 was about 600 new zealand dollars plus the cost was about 462 new zealand dollars <laughs> but uh yeah she got in trouble for pulling her shit in new zealand too <laughs> but yeah that's the that is the backstory of linda hazard and how Thanks. she wound up where she was i still hate her i it's she had chispa. she had she knew what she wanted and was like i'm gonna get it i want that man i'm gonna get that man but their money i'm gonna kill him and get their money sources for this episode uh 
pretty much to the same sources I used the last time. I have uh, Greg Olson's book, Starvation Heights, uh, Murderpedia, of course, Smithsonian Magazine article by uh, Bess Lovejoy, a collection of articles from the Washington State Archive, and then uh, a, an article called Starvation Therapy, The Strange Case of Linda Hazard by S Steve Dunkelberger. Steve Dunkelberger. I love your name. <laughs> Uh, love him. Love hate it. The person he wrote about. Okay, I I promise no more episodes about Linda Hazard. I'm good. I got it out of my system. Yay! Da 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 da. <laughs> that was oh. good. Now we've come full circle. <laughs> Yay! I, that's, Yay. Yeah, you're right. She had she had balls, but she just didn't use them correctly yes anyway uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh tune in next episode where i will bring you a krypton yes i haven't decided what it is yet but we'll know by we'll, we'll, we'll know, know by the time that episode comes out <laughs> yes we'll know by the time we record it you'll know by yeah. next tuesday yeah because by the, not next tuesday from the when we're talking right now but next tuesday from when your ears are listening. although if you're listening to this the future if you're listening to this the episode after, after this the episode yes. that comes next yes <laughs> all right and if you have any questions comments concerns sweet nothings anything that you want to to send us you can send it at truly fabulously monstrous at gmail.com also send your stories if you have stories that you want us to tell yeah. uh and you can also find us on instagram at truly fabulously monstrous and we have a twitter tfab monster pod yeah that's where you can find us and yeah so tune in next time for a cryptid yep we'll be there we hope you will too bye, bye. love true love, love. <laughs>